0: Okay, well, here we go. Who knows what uh, mysteries and wonders hide behind these doors.
1: (laughs) Peter Steinbrook's apartment in the Ravenna neighborhood of Seattle is full of artifacts. Paintings, books, old photographs, little sculptures, folders and papers, a typewriter.
0: As you can see, I'm overflowing with things like documents and my own files and Yeah, histories and things, uh, memorabilia.
1: But it's not just piles of stuff everywhere. It's organized and artful, like an antique shop or a bookstore. God,
0: there's so much stuff, you know, one could spend forever.
1: And part of the reason for that is that this isn't just Peter's stuff. It's also his family's stuff, and more specifically, his dad's stuff.
0: Private, first-class Victor Steinbrook. There's a bunch of these, so this is the kind of thing that... You'll find in here.
1: There are boxes and boxes of paperwork, notes, doodles, newspaper clippings, handwritten letters, sketches.
0: Oh, he loved to do cartoons all the time, too.
1: Bits and pieces of a well-chronicled life in the analog age. These are Victor Steinbrook's boxes. And Victor Steinbrook is a pretty big name in Seattle lore. Mostly because in the 1960s and 70s, he had a big hand in shaping a lot of the city we know today. I'm Sarah Bernard, a podcast producer at Crosscut. And I'm here with both Peter, who's Victor's youngest son and a former Seattle City Council member and port commissioner, and Knut Berger. Crosscuts editor at large and resident historian. I gotta, I gotta, that's really interesting. I have to take
2: a photograph of that. Well, sure. that's...
0: Yeah, I can loan this to
2: well, you this if you like. you can...
1: It's a pretty big day for Canute. I think digging through boxes of Seattle memorabilia like this has got to be one of his very favorite things to do.
2: It's a gold
0: mine. Okay, good. Good. Well, that's good. I'm always yeah. happy when you find something that makes you happy. <laughs>
2: All kinds of crazy so things. Like each box is a kind of treasure chest. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. the one we're looking through now is just stuffed yeah, full just don't of don't, notebooks right. don't of don't all know, different kinds, sketchbooks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, little
1: tiny ones, big ones. Yeah. And he would
0: like, make these <laughs> bo- little books, he would put them together with scrap paper and stuff. Oh, wow. And he, had, he did these every year, these handmade calendars. So there's 1983. Wow. And they usually had a sketch tied to them. Let's see, yeah. So like there's Pioneer Square.
1: Peter then pulls out a drawing to show us, a black and white sketch of a Victorian style house, which he says is probably one of the oldest houses in Eastlake, a small neighborhood next to Seattle's Lake Union, not too far from Peter's home. This is where all of these boxes were found.
0: But this is the house where these materials had been stored for the last at least 50 years in the cellar, and it truly was a root cellar. Dirt, dark, and somewhat damp, Um, a few rodents and spiders, and the ceiling height was, you had to sort of bend over a little bit. It it wasn't a full height ceiling. And the house was not very large, Um, so that's where stuff ended up, and deep six, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) and, and, And forgotten, I think, you know, for all those years.
1: Peter's parents, Victor and Elaine, had four children before they divorced in the early 1960s. Peter, the youngest, was just entering elementary school, and he lived with his mom while his dad moved out and remarried.
0: My dad uh, remarried to Marjorie Nelson, an actress in Seattle, formerly, she's deceased. um, And this was their house. So it was about 1963 that my dad moved in there, and I think he just, this stuff accumulated over the years. And that's where it ended up, in the cellar.
1: And then, as it seems these things tend to go in the Steinbrook family, it ended up with Peter.
0: So my stepsister, she and her sister cleared out the house for sale uh, about a year or so ago. And, and she just asked if I would take these boxes.
1: Pretty soon after that is when Peter reached out to Knut. Peter and Knut have actually known each other since high school. They're both born and bred Seattleites. And both are really interested in all things Seattle. Peter is a public figure, and Knut is a journalist interested in public figures. And because his father, Victor, is also a public figure, Peter knew these documents could be of interest to more people than just his family. Knut, by the way, also sometimes goes by the nickname Skip.
0: So that's how they came to me. I said, well, of course, it's either that or we have a bonfire out at uh, Golden Gardens, which I've suggested to Skip. He doesn't think too highly of that idea,
2: at least not yet. (laughs) I <laughs> almost had a stroke but Peter has done this before where he's called me and said I've got this stuff would you take a look at it give me give me a sense of its value and I yeah. you know I took a quick look and it was obvious right away that this is this is important keeper stuff about Seattle's history its clippings its notebooks its sketches its It's just a treasure trove of Victor Steinbrook's thought process, of Victor Steinbrook's correspondence, of of his draft of letters that he never sent. Uh, And I took one look at it, you know, and just said, oh my God, you know, this has to go to uh, the University of Washington. (laughs) There's just so much here.
1: So depending on your knowledge of Seattle history, you may or may not know who Victor Steinbrook even was. I confess that before all this, I didn't really know that much.
3: And The buildings were being lost like mad.
2: Victor Steinbrook was an architect, but he was also an activist. And he was a very active activist.
3: What Steinbrook proposes
1: instead is
3: the But here's
1: something I've since come to understand. Imagine all the things you think of when you think of Seattle. I mean, the iconic parts of the city itself. The places you tell people to go see if they're visiting. Victor Steinbrook had a hand in creating or preserving some of the biggest ones.
3: There's little doubt, the Space Needle will... He
2: was a key uh, designer of the Space Needle. He's also the guy who played the key role, a key role, in saving Pioneer Square from being completely destroyed. He saved the Pike Place Market from being completely destroyed. So, you know, he had a foot in the past and a foot in the future, but, you know, a lot of it was just decades of hard activist work in between to try and change the momentum of where the city was headed.
3: Uh, uh, The architecture is not nearly as important as what's going on in the building.
2: Victor really drove uh, a movement to make Seattle what we think of when we think of Seattle. You know. Um, If you think the Pike Place Market is the soul of Seattle, Victor Steinbrook is the guy who saved our soul.
1: I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is Crosscut Reports. For the next few episodes, we're diving into Seattle history through a forgotten archive. It's an archive that chronicles a time when what now feels inevitable about this city still wasn't. It's kind of an unruly collection, but it's shot through with a lot of the big questions that persist more than half a century later. Questions about what kind of city Seattle is and what kind of city it should be. All these personal memos and forgotten letters show us just how much work goes into shaping a city and the steep personal costs of doing that work. And along the way, we'll get to know this mythical guy who might have saved the city's soul, but not without making a few enemies. Victor Steinbrook was born in 1911, and his family moved to Seattle a couple years later in 1913. He studied architecture at the University of Washington in the early 1930s, fought in World War II, and when he came back in 1946, he joined the architecture faculty at the University of Washington. And as we'll get into, his interest in architecture went far beyond just buildings.
0: He had an absolute respect for labor, Anybody who came from a labor background, because that was his family's background. His father himself was a railroad engineer and a labor organizer in Seattle and was in the 1919 strike, the general strike. Mm. Um, And so we would hear stories about that and how to never cross a picket line. That was like an evil thing to do. (laughs) Um, He had a strong sense of beauty also, and he taught courses in architecture on, on aesthetics, I don't even know if they teach aesthetics anymore. People just think it's, oh, it's subjective. It's this person likes that, this person likes that color. But no, there's a whole, you know, thousands of years of, of development of what we see as um, meaningful and emotive, you know, in the visual world. Um, and, and so he was a, a strong believer in, in, in that things should be beautiful and cities should be
3: beautiful.
1: Victor has said as much himself when he's been interviewed.
3: Seattle does have the potential for being um, one of the most wonderful cities in the world.
1: This is Victor on Seattle's KRAB radio in 1973. He and the interviewer, Pamela Jennings, are talking about the city's beauty, including its natural environment, the trees, the water, the mountains.
3: I've often wondered what the city would be like if um, the pioneers, the early uh, people who developed the city had... What if they had been um, planners, architects, philosophers, and uh, people with a big uh, uh, significant cultural direction and they had decided from the beginning that because of this wonderful uh, situation here that, th- that they were going to make this the most beautiful, wonderful town and city in the world.
1: Later on in this same interview, when Victor mentions the Space Needle, this now signature part of the Seattle skyline he helped design. He says, sort of offhandedly, that its shape, with that pinch at the waist, it's kind of like the shape of Seattle itself, if you look at it on a map.
3: It's narrow. It's an hourglass figure, perhaps a little bit like the city of Seattle.
1: Yeah,
2: that that just made me look at it in a new way, like intuitively there's something about it that fits the urban landscape.
3: It's about a 45-second ride from the ground for two of the Space Needle's three elevators. And that in itself is a memorable experience, which you will enjoy vicariously before this telecast is over.
1: Knut Berger is very knowledgeable about all things Seattle. But I will say that he is particularly knowledgeable about the Space Needle. In fact, he's written a book about it. In 2011, he was named the Needle's Writer-in-Residence, in anticipation of the iconic tower's 50th anniversary in 2012. So because I asked, he explained some of the basics.
2: Seattle was hosting a World's Fair in 1962, and it was under development starting in the late 1950s. And the whole idea was to have a fair and then have a permanent civic center as a result, mm. which is what Seattle Center is.
3: For well, Seattleites have been getting
2: a preview of the most spectacular attraction at the World's Fair. But everybody knew that to have a successful World's Fair, you needed a symbol for the fair. So there was a a search for something that would be uh, an architectural landmark. Uh, The most famous one that people know about is the Eiffel Tower. It was built for a World's Fair Paris exposition. Uh, And could we, you know, in building a space age World's Fair, the the theme of the fair was life in the 21st century. Could we build a structure that would be the kind of equivalent of the Eiffel Tower of the space age? That was
1: one of the concepts. The original spark for the idea, so the story goes, came from World's Fair chief organizer Eddie Carlson,
4: a doodle made on a napkin by Edward Carlson who saw a,
1: a broadcast Germany tower with a restaurant on top of it while on a trip to Stuttgart, Germany. He got back to Seattle and decided to reach out to another influential architect, John Graham Jr. Graham was best known at the time as head of the architectural firm that had designed Northgate Mall.
2: John Graham's company was global at this point. He had, um, you know, he had done the Northgate Shopping Center, which was one of the very first auto-centric shopping malls.
3: The Central Mall is flanked by a well-balanced selection of retail stores in every field and price bracket.
2: Built in the North Seattle in the late 1940s, that model he took all over the country, all over the world, and he was so he was building these uh, sort of... You know malls of the 1950s and 60s. Um, there's an article that was in Victor's files that called in, in the Argus that called uh, John Graham the businessman's architect, and that's very true. He was very practical minded. Uh, did a lot of uh, commercial, uh, you know, development kinds of projects.
1: So anyway, Graham's firm took the assignment to design this Eiffel Tower of the space age,
2: and uh, they spent. About a year, coming up with various concepts, and none of them flew. Graham didn't like them, or uh, they just didn't work for one reason or another. And some of those images are in the UW library, and you can see some of them look like flying saucers that have landed in in a in a marsh, or (laughs) others look like cocktail shakers. I mean, they were all they were playing with all kinds of concepts, and. So by the summer of 1960, the fair is going to open in the spring of 1962. So roughly a little less than two years before the fair, they still didn't have a plan.
1: And here's where Victor Steinbrook comes in.
2: So uh, through the recommendation of uh, some other architects, Graham hired Victor Steinbrook. Had been recommended to him. Here's a professor at the University of Washington. He could use some summer income. So for $5 an hour, Victor Steinbruck comes in and is basically handed the project and told to come up with, you know, see if he can come up with a bunch of sketches and come up with a final concept. And so Victor began cranking out all kinds of drawings, and in late summer of 1960, Victor was at home, and there was a wooden sculpture that he had called the feminine one, and it was an abstract wooden sculpture. That you could put on your desk. It's not huge, and it was done by a friend of his. Um, And it was a a sort of three-legged figure reaching, with these kind of abstract arms reaching up to the sky. And this suddenly gave Victor the aha moment, which was so. If you look at the at the space needle, one of the unique things about it, instead of being a sort of shaft, a masculine form. It's a feminine form, and it's in the shape of uh, a tripod with a narrow waist and then these uh, arms reaching up, holding the saucer. This was sort of a big breakthrough. So he did a bunch of sketches. They got all the architects together, and Victor's sketch was the one they picked as, "This, this is the one we should do.
1: Peter was born in 1957, so he was only about four or five years old around this time. But he says he remembers it.
0: I remember going up. Yeah, I do. Because uh, it, it was pretty impressive. You know, it was the tallest thing. You know, it was dramatic.
3: In the unique Space Needle, which now crowns the city. You know. And which has become its...
0: <laughs> um, and uh, for a child, especially, um, back if you can think about it, you know, there was none of the high-rise buildings downtown.
1: So because of Victor's role in designing the Space Needle, And because, as I've come to understand, he was really, really meticulous about saving all kinds of documents, and sometimes even extra copies of those documents, there are some papers in these boxes found in the basement of that Eastlake house that shed new light on both the Space Needle itself and the people involved in creating it. We'll be right back.
4: Public safety. Reproductive rights. The arts, education, election security. These are the issues at the heart of our civic life. And they're just a few of the topics up for discussion at Civic Cocktail, the monthly event series produced by Seattle City Club and Crosscut and broadcast on KCTS 9. For more than a decade, Civic Cocktail has been connecting community leaders from Seattle and the state of Washington to the public through lively conversations about the most important issues facing the region. And you can be a part of that conversation. Join host Monica Guzman as she sits down with the people who help shape our civic life and asks the questions that help build a greater understanding of this place we all call home. To see what we're talking about next and to RSVP to the taping of the next episode, Go to crosscut.com slash events.
1: There really is a lot of stuff in these boxes. Even though Peter had been holding on to them, he never had much time to dig in. So, after bringing Canute into the picture, he basically handed a big chunk of them over so Canute could take them home, spend time with them, figure out what's really in there. Then, Canute brought his findings back to Peter.
2: Well, Peter, I want to just point out two other interesting things. Okay, so one is this list, a uh, mimeographed uh, sheet of suggested names for the Space Needle.
0: Oh, yeah, you mentioned right. that. Okay. So.
1: Now, this is really delightful. I just love this list. I snapped a photo of it on my phone so I can consult it from time to time just for fun. The name Space Needle, it is kind of weird, right? But we don't think that, because that's what it's called. It's just the Space Needle, of course. It was one of the earlier ideas, apparently. And in the end, it won out. But this list of potential alternatives, which are mostly ridiculous shows us just how close we might have come to calling the 600-foot tower that defines Seattle's skyline the Star Tickler.
2: So th- there are multiple copies of this, oh, wow. okay, on John Graham's stationery. Oh, So this was that the, the architect's office. Okay, They're trying to figure out what to name the structure. And so here are two, um, two other working wow. versions of it.
0: And this was pre-construction. Uh, There's they no date.
2: Yeah. And my guess is that it was fairly late in the game.
0: Yeah. They knew they needed to call it something. Right. Yeah. And so. I think
2: Space Needle was the the name that had been put forward by Eddie Carlson.
0: Does that appear in the lesson? No. No, uh-uh. no. Really? No.
2: So I think. I think they weren't yeah, satisfied with that name. That's John Graham Stationery, there, isn't it? Yes, yeah. that's oh, what God. I'm saying. This is, this is, and I think what it is that's is, right. is you can sort of see the list, and then yeah. it's expanded there and distributed yeah. in a longer version. They were having fun, yeah, thinking sure about what they were going to call this the thing. The
0: seagull and the eagle. <laughs> what goes up <laughs> must come down. Uh, top hat. Fallout in. Big Skookum. <laughs> This is just
1: hilarious. My gosh. Yeah, good. FYI, the Space Needle could also have been called Withering Heights, Spaceroo, Extra Century Perception, or The Cow Jump.
2: The other thing is um, there's a TypeScript version of this.
1: Among other things, in Victor Steinbrook's long forgotten stack of files on the Space Needle is a kind of retrospective from the architect himself. There are two versions here, one that's typed up and a handwritten scrawl in a yellow notebook. It's dated February 1962, and it's a lengthy critique of his own ideas.
2: Your dad wrote The Space Needle, an Architectural Evaluation by Professor Victor Steinbrook. Oh, really? He did a critique <laughs> of his own work. Wow. That, I did not know. I, I had have not never seen heard of this. I mean, I...
1: We're not totally sure where this was published, if at all. It might have been something that Victor delivered in a lecture. Knut says he's pretty sure no one has seen this since 1962. But one thing we do know, this critique, it's pretty critical. He
2: says here, um, Lastly, a thought expressed that the entire form might be more pleasing if the uh, attenuated midsection silhouette were higher as well as being shorter in length with the arms extended farther out at a greater angle to the top. The lady could be higher-waisted, more, gre- more Grecian in form. Oh my it is interesting to take one of the many published photographs and pencil in a different form to see whether it might have been more pleasing. Hmm, interesting. I, you know, I mean, that says so much that yeah. he's, he's willing to consider I, I could have made a better yeah. space needle.
0: There's always something that you wish you'd done a little differently, and I'm sure that's true for in, in the art world in yeah. general. You know, you think about it, you look at it, you right, know. Nothing's and, ever perfect. No, yeah. that is absolutely right. Nothing ever is, and, I, you know, I, I, I understand that feeling.
1: But perhaps the biggest discovery in this box is a bit of drama.
2: So, you know, I, I was excited when I saw the Space Needle file, um, because obviously your dad and <laughs> Victor Steinberg designed the bloody thing. Yeah. But there was also a controversy over that.
1: Turns out the question of who designed the Space Needle is actually much more fraught than it seems. And Victor painstakingly chronicled that question in his own personal files, keeping everything on it, from newspaper clippings to handwritten notes to himself, to official documents. The drama showed up before the Space Needle was even complete. It seems to have started in September 1961, when a columnist for The Seattle Times, Lou Guzzo, published a piece speculating on the origins of the new structure.
2: So the, a little item appears in Lou Guzzo's column that basically say, it says something to the effect of, you know, a word on the street is that the designer of the Space Needle is architect Victor Steinberg. Well, this causes an absolute explosion on, of, of John Graham's. So here's a file, a folder with your dad's handwriting. It says Space Needle, John Graham Company, <laughs> etc. You know, because his perception is Victor Steinbrook, who is a, a hireling of mine, is trying to take credit for the Space Needle. And of course, the custom at the time was if your firm did the work, you got the credit. You didn't necessarily credit individual architects who worked under your su- supervision.
0: Yeah, it wasn't the individual architects were off, were rarely, if ever, credited with having been there. You, you right. know, the the artistic you know uh, uh, attribution it would the, it would go to the firm. So that was right. a pretty normal, yeah. conventional thing. But my dad didn't quite like that. So. Well,
2: Graham, you know, sort of said, well, there were a whole bunch of people involved, you know, this architect, that architect. Victor Steinbrook was just one of the guys who, you know, came up with the design. And Victor said, well, no, wait a minute. Yeah, a lot of people worked on it. You know, it's, it's a John Graham Jr. project, but when it comes to the, you know, the final design and the, of that tower and the whole concept, that was mine.
1: This dispute is something that Peter knew a little bit about. And it was somewhat known at the time because it played out in the press. But what Canute found in Victor's files was that the falling out was a little more extreme. After Graham and company issued a big press release trying to correct the record on this, they filed an official grievance with the American Institute of Architects.
2: And in here is the uh, Graham document uh, charging Victor with this crime of malfeasance, you know, or unethical behavior regarding the thing, citing all these examples of where Victor did not correct the person who interviewed him. Because they couldn't find Victor saying, I designed the space needle. Uh. But they, they could find examples where... In an interview, somebody said you designed the Space Needle, and he didn't contradict them. Mm. And so here, complaint.
0: So he didn't deny it that, or he didn't refute that he had designed the Space That's Needle. That's right. He didn't refute. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: They charged him. Yeah, these, these, this is a copy of the complaint against your father, December twenty seventh, nineteen sixty one. So this is, this is less than a month after the Space Needle design was announced. Oh. Wow. Okay, complaint against Victor Steinbrook. This is a complaint against Victor Steinbrook for violation of professional ethics. He's a member of the American Institute of Architects and subject to its standards and professional behavior. And they they said, architect shall not knowingly injure falsely maliciously or the, the professional reputation of another architect. Architect shall not attempt to supplant another architect. Architects shall not uh, use paid advertising nor self-laudatory, exaggerated, or misleading publicity. Anyway, it goes through these various things, uh, basically talks about what the, their version of his role in the um, thing. Then it cites these interviews, including a transcript from a, I think I believe that's a radio interview. Well, we can't visit that without talking to you about the Space Needle, which was your brainchild. How did you conceive of the Space Needle? What of the basic shape? And so, you know, he they they cited these as examples. Radio of, interview. Yeah.
0: Of my father. Of, yeah. Yeah, huh.
2: yeah. So anyway, this complaint went. <laughs> now with,
0: that's something that's news to me. I didn't know that that uh, Graham had filed a grievance against me, and out. that early on, right the after. Yeah.
1: In the end, apparently, the charges against Victor Steinbrook weren't found to have a lot of merit. And nothing seems to have come of it. And it seems like Victor, too, was ready to drop it. That architectural critique of the Space Needle that I mentioned earlier was dated just a couple months after Graham's complaint was filed. And, as if to make peace, it ends on a conciliatory note. And then at the
2: end of the critique, he says, and this this just goes back to the feud, in spite of these questions regarding the ultimate aesthetic quality of the space needle, there is no doubt that the team of John Graham and Company Architects and Engineers has made a great contribution to Seattle, uh, the Seattle World's Fair and future Seattle Center. So I, th- I think there was a truce. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that with the complaint to AIA and with what Victor wrote about and credit he gave to Graham, I think there was this agreement to, like, we're not gonna fight in public anymore over this.
1: But in the same document, Victor also drops a hint of what's to come, a philosophy he would carry forward for the next two decades.
2: And then, but the last line is also so Victor. It makes the point that while architecture may be privately owned, it belongs to all. And this, this was his whole point, whether it was Pike Place Market or Pioneer Square, It was the idea that he was upset that making money at the expense of people should be something that architects should fight against.
1: And fight Victor did. For instance, when there was a proposal a dozen years later to build what's now called the skyline level of the Space Needle.
2: The skyline level offers a monumental experience. For the idea was
1: to add a second restaurant in addition to the restaurant at the top. But this one would be about 100 feet off the ground. And
2: Victor just went to war on that. It was screwing up his design, screwing up the Space Needle. John Graham, was his company was the one who designed and built it and Graham basically said, hey, I built the Space Needle in the first place. I know whether this is appropriate or not, and I think it's appropriate. Hmm. Uh, Victor just saw it as he drew a a doodle that got published in the paper uh, that showed the Space Needle turning into a dollar sign. Mm -hmm. And he was very critical of, you know, the owners were greedy, and they were just trying to make money, and they were just destroying the— the beautiful lines of the Space Needle, and, uh, and that project ended up being delayed some years. But there was the vitriol of that effort was intense. And Victor was saying, look, this is a landmark. Don't mess it up.
3: It was the allure of this region that called into being the unique structure which is now Seattle's permanent symbol in the sky. The Space Needle.
1: But the skyline level got built in 1982. The Space Needle didn't officially become a city landmark until 1999. And while Victor Steinbrook had a significant role in the Space Needle's design, and in apparently fighting over modifications to that design, he never designed anything at all like it ever again.
2: But it's interesting that Victor didn't become the architect of other Space Needles. I
0: think the last big piece of architecture he did was the Space Needle as one of the designers.
2: Yeah. You know, like Victor didn't turn that into some kind of success, go around and go to other cities and, and come up with designs for their towers. And so in that way, his, his sort of architectural legacy is, is partly invisible. Because right. there's, other than the Space Needle, there's like nothing that followed it. There's right. nothing that he tried to top it with. Right. Um, and that could be because he became known as, you know, a, a, an activist and to some an obstructionist. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also be people were wary to work with him after the controversy with John Graham. Who had tremendous influence in the community, employed a lot of architects. Um, You know, I I think
1: there are aspects. That's all possible, and seems more possible now that, thanks to all these documents, we know the extent of the feud between Victor Steinbrook and John Graham Jr. But Peter says that at some point around this feud with Graham, his dad might have had another sort of feud with the whole industry.
0: Now he was fully focused on architecture and teaching and had a private practice and often worked for other firms because he didn't want to own his own firm. He didn't want to be in in business hiring others. But then something started to change and I think he started to have a somewhat of a falling out with the profession itself because he felt that there was too much ambition and not enough mission in the architecture, if you will.
1: And Peter thinks that the evidence for this point of view is clear because, years later, Victor voluntarily removed himself from the very same professional organization that John Graham Jr. tried to get him sanctioned by.
0: At one point, he... He wrote to the American Institute of Architects. They bestow on a very few architects what they call the Fellowship of Architecture. You are a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. He earned that fellowship in 1963. He um, gave it back to them later on in life. He was so dismayed and disappointed that the architects were not standing up for the things that he thought were important in urban life and in the
2: urban environment. And he he made enemies along the way, I mean.
1: Turns out, Victor Steinbrook had a number of big falling outs throughout his career. For instance, there was the falling out with John Graham Jr. we've been talking about, as well as a falling out with Paul Hayden Kirk, another Seattle architect who he'd been close with until they disagreed on the future of Pike Place Market. And he had a falling out with Minoru Yamasaki.
4: Minoru Yamasaki was born to Japanese immigrant parents in Seattle in 19... His
1: architecture school friend, who became famous for designing the original World Trade Center in New York. In
4: 1945, Yamasaki secured a position at the firm of Smith Hinchman and Grills in Detroit.
0: My father had moved to Detroit in 1957 and was pursuing what looked to be a very promising career nationwide in architecture, but Yamasaki's career was focused on high-rise buildings that tended to displace entire blocks of smaller buildings and people and shops and, you know, low-income housing. And, you know, they, they had, once again, a falling out. And I think my dad figured out that that wasn't his ambition.
1: And over time, as Victor really leaned into his other ambitions... Which were less about building things and more about preserving them, he developed quite the reputation. Knut says while he was researching his book on the Space Needle, he heard some stories too.
2: He had f- fallings out certainly with with people in the business community. I, I remember Bagley Wright, who was you know a developer and businessman, and he one of the funders of the Space Needle, and he was the first president of the Space Needle. I interviewed him for my book. About the Space Needle and he told me that he joked with John Graham he said well you only hired Victor Steinberg to keep him off the picket line oh <laughs> now that's not true because nobody was picketing the, the Space Needle but I, there was a comment made at a later point but it was also you know Victor was not afraid of fighting he was not a guy who was going to be limited by Seattle nice he was you know, he was going to make his points and, you know, if you disagreed with him, he you were going to know about it. And I think as time went on, maybe he got a little more strident and I think, yeah, I think he could be pretty prickly. You no, know, He never shied from conflict
0: or tension. And for the most part, he was res- respectful of others, but Sometimes was known for sharp words and and glibness, but, you know, you can't can't make effective changes without offending somebody, it's just not possible. Uh, So yeah, so you start to see this pattern over time of strong philosophical disagreements and values disagreements. And then my dad starts to increasingly become more of an activist and on the outside basically and somewhat marginalized which people don't know today but he was marginalized and ostracized and called all sorts of names and things um, as an obstructionist yeah a scab on the height of development and stuff about progress uh, you know a barnacle on the height of progress and things like that i'm
3: referring to the urban renewal plan
1: and so victor steinbrook in the 1960s was moving quickly, from architect to activist.
3: I can't tell how long it takes to get answers, Mrs. Lampier.
1: And his first major stop on that path was Pioneer Square.
3: Whenever I wrote something about Pioneer Square, I always expressed concern about those people and and not pushing them out, uh, having a place for them.
2: You know, is Seattle history worth preserving? Is their history worth preserving? Question, you know.
1: That's next time. On Crosscut Reports. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Knut Berger and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Editorial assistance from Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Audio engineering by Rusty Bacall. Special thanks, of course, to Peter Steinbrook for all his help with this series. And to the Jack Straw Cultural Center and KRAB Radio Archive for letting us use that 1973 interview with Victor. Also, a big thanks to Jenna Martin, CrossCut's associate photo editor, who photographed and scanned a lot of documents from Victor Steinbrook's files and who tracked down some additional archival images that really bring this story to life. To see all of those images, as well as an essay from Knut about this episode's discoveries, follow the link in the show notes. Or you can go to CrossCut.com podcasts and click on CrossCut Reports. There's also a place on the story page where you can weigh in with your own thoughts on the legacy of Victor Steinbrook think the Space Needle should have been named the Star Tickler, we want to hear from you. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. This is a new show for us, and we want to know what you think. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS-9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.